Luke chapter 18, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 8 today. And our gracious Father, we just call upon your name. It is true, the words that we're going to read in just a moment, you authored and you're here with us. You can help us to understand and apply them. And that's what we're asking you to do, O Lord. Cause your Holy Spirit to open up our eyes to the truth and open up our hearts to be willing to follow it and obey the truth. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Luke 18, starting in verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, But afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God, nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection, otherwise by continually coming she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect, who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you, that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It has been reported in history that on February 23rd, 155 AD, the people at the public Roman games in the Roman Colosseum were being whipped into a frenzy. And finally somebody cried out, Let Polycarp be searched for. Now, Polycarp was the pastor of the church in Smyrna. And he was also a disciple of the Apostle John. He knew John personally. Well, three days before this took place, Polycarp was in prayer, and he had a vision of the pillow under his head being burst into flames. And he went and told his fellow believers that I'm going to be burned alive for my faith. That day... When this frenzy in the public games was going on, they came and arrested Polycarp. And when they arrested him, he asked for the privilege of just having one hour of prayer with with the Lord before he was taken to his execution. As he entered the Roman arena, God spoke to him. And God said, be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. These are all documents that you can read, this whole historical account, if you go online online and, and look it up. It's very interesting. And the Roman proconsul gave him the choice between cursing the name of Christ and making a sacrifice to Caesar or being killed for his faith. And this was how Polycarp responded. Eighty-six years I have served the Lord. He has never done me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? When the proconsul threatened him with being burned at the stake, Polycarp replied this way, You threaten me with the fire that burns for a time and is quickly quenched, but you do not know the fire that awaits the wicked and the judgments to come into everlasting punishment. Why are you waiting? Come and do what you will. The crowds went crazy. They even went and brought firewood from their own uh, wood shops and sheds, and they brought this wood And there Polycarp stood, they set the wood around him on fire, and amazingly the fire didn't harm him. It came right up to him, but wouldn't burn him. And all the while he's singing praises to God, 
the people are getting impatient. And so finally, some of the people around him grab spears and thrust him through, and he's finally killed. Now, Polycarp was only one of thousands upon thousands of Christians over the last couple thousand years of the history of the church that have died for their faith as martyrs. Christians have suffered horrible injustices by the people of the world. They have been fed to lions in the Roman Colosseum. They have been rolled in pitch and lighted as human torches to light up the gardens of Nero, the emperor. They have been hanged. They have been drowned. They have been beheaded and they have been shot to death, among other things. So my question to you this morning is, when we as Christians face injustices because we're Christians, how are we supposed to respond? What do we do? Well, Jesus gives the answer. Luke tells us in verse 1 that we ought at all times to pray and not to lose heart. That's our answer. Now, Luke is recording for us one of the wonderful parables that Jesus gave here in Luke chapter 18. One of the reasons I, I love Luke, and I think it's probably my favorite of the four Gospels, is because of the, all the parables that Luke includes in, in his Gospel. And many of them are only repeated here, like this one. You don't find this parable anywhere else, but, but Luke gives it to us. Just like the parable of the prodigal son, Luke is the only one that includes that one or the parable of the Good Samaritan. He, he gives us these wonderful teachings of Jesus that we don't get anywhere else. Now, a parable is an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. We're going to look at an earthly story that Jesus told that has a spiritual, a heavenly meaning that's intended to help us cope with injustices as Christians. And as we work our way through this parable, I'm going to give you three parts to it. First of all, the purpose, verse 1. Secondly, the plot, verses 2 through 5. And then thirdly, the point of the parable. That's in verses 6 through 8. <clears throat> so we're going to take a look, first of all, at the purpose of this parable. Notice verse 1. He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. The key hangs at the door when it comes to this parable, because Luke tells us why the parable was given. Now that's great, because usually when a parable is given in the scriptures, we, we're not given this little insight about why it was given and what the point is all about. But Luke tells us that at the very beginning. Here's the purpose. So that at all times, Christians ought to pray and not to lose heart. Notice it says he was telling them a parable. Well, who is the them? It's not the Pharisees. Sometimes Jesus does speak to the religious leaders of the day. It's not them. We're told in Luke 17, 22, and he said to the disciples, so he begins to address the disciples about his second coming, and he hasn't changed. He's still talking to his disciples, and he's telling his disciples, when you face injustices because of your faith in me, this is how you are to respond. You are to pray at all times and not to lose heart. Now, 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says that we are to pray without ceasing. And I have read this verse, Luke 18.1, and thought, oh, well, that's what it means. We're to pray at all times and not to lose heart. We're to pray without ceasing. 
We're just to pray for anything in general, all the time. And that's Luke's point. I don't think that's what he means anymore. Let's look at the context of the passage. What directly precedes Luke 18? What has Jesus been teaching about? If you go back to Luke 17, in the second half of the chapter, what is it all about? It's his second coming, right? He's teaching his disciples about his return, his second coming. Now, has Jesus changed subjects when we come to chapter 18? Now, we like to think so because there's a new chapter. But when the Bible was written, there weren't any chapter divisions. So the original recipients that got this gospel, Theophilus, when he read it, he wouldn't have had any new chapter. He's just reading straight from chapter 17 right on into these words about not losing heart in prayer. Theophilus probably would have connected the events of 17, the second coming, with this, this parable on prayer in chapter 18. And I don't believe Jesus has changed his subject. He's still talking about his second coming. Look at verse 8. I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You see, Jesus is still talking about his second coming. Now he, the only, he just switched gears a little bit. Now he's telling them, when you face injustices between my first coming and my second coming, how should you respond? In light of the fact that I am going to come, you should pray at all times and not lose heart. You see, we can lose heart if we lose sight of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you lose heart if you were constantly persecuted and afflicted for your faith and you knew Jesus was never coming to come back? All these wrongs against you would never be righted. Punishment would never be dealt to those who have perpetrated these evil crimes and been harassing, beating, and sometimes murdering other believers. Nothing would ever be righted. If that was the case, I would lose heart. Why am I even going through all of this then? But we have to keep our eyes on the fact that Jesus is coming, and when he comes, all these wrongs will be righted. Justice will be served. God's people will be delivered. God's enemies will be destroyed, and they will be punished for their crimes that they have committed. And so we need to keep our eyes on his coming. Um, right now, Christians are mocked and persecuted and belittled, and injustice abounds towards Christians. And so this parable was given, remember in the parable, there's a widow who's being treated unjustly. She keeps crying out for legal protection. She's not getting it. Injustice is happening to her. And Jesus is using this parable to teach us that we, like the widow, will be treated unjustly. And we must cry to God day and night, just like this widow cried to this judge day and night until justice was given to her. <clears throat> Now, we can also lose heart because it seems like the Lord's coming is delayed. It seems like, well, those early Christians expected the Lord to come soon, probably in their lifetime, and He didn't. In fact, even Peter, writing in 2 Peter chapter 3, let's just take a look at that for a moment. Peter, writing in his own lifetime, so just you know, a generation from the time of Christ's death. In 2 Peter 3, verse 3, 
He says, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So these mockers are going to come and they're going to mock us and they're going to belittle us and think we're stupid or ignorant because we do believe that Jesus Christ will come back. And they're saying, well, look around you. Everything's just the same as it's always been. Nothing's changed. Why would you think that Jesus Christ is going to come back from heaven to return again? Why would you even think that? That's a stupid notion. And because the Lord's coming has been delayed, it's easy for us to lose heart. Look at Luke 17, 22. Jesus said, the days will come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So you're going to long for me to be with you, but I won't be with you. And, and you're going to be tempted to lose heart from that. And you might even have temp these temptations to doubt whether Christ is going to return. Hey, it's been 2,000 years. The early Christians expected him to come much sooner than that. You might even be tempted to doubt God's word. Can it be trusted? Is it true? And, and losing heart's a real temptation for the Christian if he loses sight of the return of Christ, or when that return is delayed, this just becomes more and more exacerbated. So what's the remedy? Luke says, here's the remedy. At all times, we must pray and not lose heart. Between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, for all during that period of time, Christians must pray and not lose heart. What are we to pray for? We're to pray that the Lord will come. We're to pray that the Lord would judge His enemies. We're to pray that the Lord would deliver His, His people. I want you to turn over with me for just a moment to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Because Paul deals with all of this in 2 Thessalonians 1. Chapter 1, verse 4. He says, Therefore we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your, notice the words carefully, for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. The same thing we're talking about here in Luke chapter 18. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. We are to pray that God will send His Son Jesus back, that Christ will return, that He will give relief to God's people, that He will judge those who have been persecuting and afflicting the people of God. And so this is prayer unto that end. It's prayer concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's prayer that we would be able to persevere through those persecutions and not deny Christ in the midst of them and be faithful until death. <coughs> It's prayer for all of those things related to enduring unto the end. So there we have the purpose of the parable. Pray, always, not lose heart.
But now let's just get into the, uh, the plot itself, the plot of the parable. There are two characters here. There's a widow and a judge. Luke mentions widows more than any of the other gospel writers combined. And that makes sense because Luke is concerned about the underdog. Sometimes this gospel has been called the gospel of the underdog. He talks about women more than anybody else. He talks about tax collectors, <clears throat> um, prostitutes, the, the, the people that are just marginalized, the outcasts of society. Luke has a special interest in them. And here, he, Jesus uses in one of his parables the subject of a widow. Now, she had three strikes against her. <coughs> Number one, she was a woman. And women in that culture and in that day were treated as second-class citizens. They were not considered equal to men. And there was lots of different circumstances where that showed up. Um, so that's the first strike. Second strike, she didn't have a husband to protect her or to fight for her, to go to battle for her when she has been being uh, defrauded and mistreated by somebody else. And number three, because she was a widow, she was poor. She had no one to provide an income for her. So three strikes against her right off the bat. She's the picture of someone who's destitute, who's marginalized, and who's helpless. Not only that, but in that particular culture, jobs for women were very scarce. They didn't have anything like life insurance. And so whatever her husband happened to leave to her was what she had to live on. And besides all of that, some scoundrel had defrauded her and cheated her out of whatever that husband had left her. So this woman is desperate. She is absolutely desperate. She's got to have legal protection. Now, there's also the judge here. What do we know about this judge? What does Jesus call him in verse 6? Unrighteous. This is a wicked man, a wicked judge. He, he ought not be a judge at all. In fact, he's described in verse 2 as someone who doesn't fear God and doesn't respect man. He doesn't care about what God says. He doesn't care about what man says. Who does he care about? Himself. <laughs> he's a very selfish, self-centered individual. All he's concerned about is himself. So this is a wicked man. So if you've got this destitute, helpless widow on the one hand, poor, needy, and you've got this wicked judge on the other hand, you're going, oh, oh these, this, this isn't going to end well. This story's not going to have a good ending. You've got a bad judge and a destitute widow. How in the world is she ever going to get the help she needs to protect herself? In fact, this judge is probably only interested in hearing cases of those who are willing to pay him well. And so he tells his bailiff, please just escort that woman out of my courtroom. That's the last I'm going to be talking to you. Goodbye. <laughs> Little did he know that this woman was going to make his life miserable. Every morning he gets up, he has some breakfast, he heads off for work, and the widow's there at his doorstep, talking to him all the way to work, nagging him, dogging his steps. He gets out of the courtroom and goes to get a bite to eat at lunchtime, and the woman's right there, after him again. When he's off for the day and he's walking back home, there she is again, walking all the way to his doorstep, all the way till he enters the door, bangs and closes it on her. And then the next day it starts all over again. This woman is going to, she will not take no for an answer. She is absolutely determined she must have some help. She must have some protection. And so she's just at, at this judge's 
every beck and call at his steps all the time. She won't give him any rest. In fact, he even says in verse 5, she bothers me. She's going to wear me out. I can't handle it anymore. I don't even want to go to work anymore because I know I'm going to see this doggone woman who's making my life miserable. In the King James, I believe he uses the word importunity. Correct me if I'm wrong. But that word importunity means unashamedness. This woman, a lot of people would be ashamed to cause so much, so much bother and so much pain by bugging them so much. But Jesus is actually commending the woman, and he's teaching us through it all, to be importunate, to be unashamed, bold, and persistent in prayer. It says here in verse... Um, Verse 3, there was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him. There's the key phrase. She kept at it. She didn't ask the judge one time if you'd give me legal protection and then drop the matter. She kept coming. She kept coming. She kept coming. And that's the thing that the Lord is wanting us to see in this parable. She was always dogging him. Finally, verse 5, even though I don't fear God or respect man, he admits his ungodly, wicked character. Yet, because this widow bothers me, I'll give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she's going to wear me out. Now, it wasn't because he was a kind and compassionate judge. It wasn't even because he was a righteous and just or fair judge that he was willing to do this. It was because this woman was making his life miserable. And he just wanted to get her off his back. And so he was willing to do anything he had to do just to shut her up and make her go away. Now let's look at the point of the parable. Verses 6 through 8. First of all, we need to see that this widow represents who? Christians. Yeah, Christians. Who are the, what are they called in verse 7? His elect. So the widow represents God's elect. God's chosen. Who does the judge represent? God. Represents God. And as she kept coming and kept coming and kept coming, we are to pray, verse 1, or we are to cry, verse 7, day and night, again and again and again, we are not to give up. We are to cry unashamedly until the answer comes. Now that shows us a comparison. There is a comparison between the judge and God. There is a comparison between the widow and us. But there's also a great contrast. And if we miss that, we miss everything. Because, first of all, is, is God like this judge? Is he an unrighteous judge who must be bribed or nagged constantly to get him to do what we want him to do? Of course not. The point of the parable is not just keep nagging God and we'll finally be able to overcome his reluctance to help you. That's not the point. God is not like the judge. In fact, read it like this. Verse 7. Will not God bring about justice for his elect? Those two words should be emphasized. God and elect. We are not like the widow and God's not like the judge. God is loving and good, and compassionate, and kind, and he hears the prayers of his people, and he wants to answer their cry. He's not reluctant. He doesn't have to be badgered to get 
for us to get him to do what we want him to do. But not only that, we're not like the widow. In this, in this instance, she was a stranger to the judge. She had absolutely no relationship to that judge. The judge never met her before. He had no, no kinship, no reason to do her good. But we are called God's elect. That means that if you're a Christian, if you're a true believer in Jesus Christ, God chose you to be saved before the foundation of the world. God set His love and set His heart upon you specifically before time. He planned to include you in His bride, the church. He loves you just like He loves His own Son. Before time, His plan was to wash you of your sins, adopt you into His family, glorify you together with His Son, Jesus Christ. Christian, do you know who you are? You're an elect. You're chosen by God the Father. You, you need to see that, and you need to see the great love that God has for you. You're not like this widow. The judge had no concern at all for her. You are one, you're like the judge's very own son. And the judge is going to be moved with compassion to hear the case of his own child. So, this judge was not like God. This widow is not like us. There is, this is how we should read it. If this widow could persuade this wicked judge to give her legal protection, how much more will God give us justice and hear our cries when we cry to Him day and night because we're one of His elect and He's our Father? Do you see the contrast? It's a how much more proposition. We have those in Romans all the time in chapter 5. How much more will God do this for you? Now, what are we specifically supposed to be praying about? Look at verses 7 and 8. Will not God bring about justice for His elect? Verse 8. I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. I believe the prayers that we're supposed to be praying at all times and not to lose heart, we're to pray that God will bring about justice. We're to pray that Christ will return and bring about justice. I believe that's the point of this parable. It's not just a parable we pray about anything all the time, like 1 Thessalonians 5.17. It's a specific intent. Pray for the coming of Christ where He will overturn these persecutors and people who have afflicted you and belittled you and ridiculed and mocked you and beat you and spat upon you. And all of those things happen. All of them are happening today throughout the world. Now, the difficulty here is the word quickly. Verse 8, I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. How do we understand that when people have been praying for Christ to return and to bring about justice for a long time? 2,000 years. How do we understand that? And that is a difficulty of, of interpretation when it comes to this parable. For me, the, the answer is that we need to understand that God's perspective is different from ours. God's timetable is different from ours. Again, 2 Peter 3, verse 8 says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. So, 
What to us seems like an interminably long period of time, a thousand years, it goes by like a day to God. So we just have to understand that he, his perspective is timeless, and ours were bound to this time-space continuum. We, we, we can't even fathom any other way of looking at life or reality. But God doesn't see things the way we do. And we know that because in the past, well, God made promises, and His people expected Him to fulfill those promises immediately, and He didn't. He waited, and He waited, and He waited. Now, eventually He did. Think about the flood. God promised that He was going to send a flood to destroy the earth. But He made that promise 120 years before it happened. And Noah's being ridiculed and mocked and jeered at because he's saying, hey, rain water is going to fall from the sky and it's going to keep falling and falling and falling until the whole world's destroyed. And they're going, you're crazy. Because <laughs> they've never seen rain before. Before that, just a mist would rise up from the ground. So they've never seen water fall from the sky. For 120 years, Noah, a preacher of righteousness, preached that God is bringing judgment. This ark is the only means of escape. Escape while you can. And nobody took him up on the offer. But God did eventually bring judgment and fulfill his promise. But it was much longer than probably Noah ever expected. Or what about the promise to Abraham that he would give him a son? Years and years went by. Sarah went through menopause. She went to the place where she couldn't have children anymore. And then God answers 25 years later. Or what about the promise to Joseph that his family would bow down to him and that he would rule over them? Well, what happens? He's sold into uh, these slave traders, these Midianite slave traders. He ends up in prison for 12 years from the time he's 18 till the time he's 30. And he's probably wondering, Lord, did I get that dream right? <laughs> Is this really going to happen? But of course, God always comes through in the end a lot longer than we would like, but he comes through in the end and he fulfills his promise. What about the promise to his own people that he was going to deliver them out of Egypt, out of bondage? Well, they ended up spending 400 years in Egypt, oppressed and enslaved. But finally, God fulfills his promise. The greatest promise of all was that God would, is going to send a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior to the world. That comes about in Genesis 3.15. Thousands of years later, <laughs> he fulfills his promise. So, God has made a promise. Christ is coming. We don't know how long it's going to be until he comes back. But we know he will fulfill the promise. The promise will be fulfilled. From God's perspective, it's quickly. From our perspective, we wish it had <laughs> come a lot sooner. Now, one other thing I want you to notice from Luke 18 is this word faith in verse 8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? How do you suppose that faith will be being expressed when Jesus comes back? Prayer. It will be expressed through crying to him day and night that he would bring about justice for his elect. Now, God's people have gone through horrendous times of suffering throughout the history of the Christian church. Horrendous. We just have to admit that. 
You know, don't have this rosy picture that if you're a Christian, everything is going to be great. <laughs> Talk to the, to the Christians of the first 300 years. They went through 10 waves of persecution where thousands of them were martyred. Thousands upon thousands were martyred in the first 300 years of the church. But it didn't stamp out Christianity. It caused it to multiply. But here, Jesus says, when the Son of Man comes, is he going to find faith? Will I find people crying to me day and night? Will I find you praying? Will I find you interceding? That's what I want to know. Now let's, let's draw some application from this passage. First of all, what do we do when we face affliction and persecution? And secondly, what do we do when others face affliction and persecution? When we face persecution, here's the application, cry out to God. Talk to God. Make your complaints, your requests known unto God. Cry out to the Lord that He would have mercy. Over in the book of 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, here's what Paul says, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And then he says this interesting word, Maranatha. Maranatha. Now, what in the, we, we read that word and think, what does that mean? Whoever uses that word in English, Maranatha, it's a word that means, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. It, it's an expression of longing, of wishing, of prayer, that Jesus would return. And not only that, but at the very end of our Bibles, in Revelation chapter 22, and verse 20, notice this. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That was the Apostle John uttering that. Come, Lord Jesus. So we have Paul telling us that he's longing and asking the Lord Jesus to come. We have the Apostle John uttering the same thing. And we have Jesus Christ himself when he taught us to pray. He said, pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come. Pray that the kingdom would come. And when the kingdom comes, God's will will be done on earth as it's already done in heaven. So it is not inappropriate for us saints to pray that Christ would return especially when you are being afflicted and persecuted for your faith. Now, thankfully, or maybe unthankfully, I don't know how to put it, here in America, we haven't had to face too much of that. Of course, we face ridicule and mockery and things like that. But when it comes to beatings and stonings and beheadings and things like that, here in America, we've been pretty free of that kind of thing. But we have no guarantee for the future. And the way our culture is going, I would not be surprised if within my lifetime we start to see some pretty heavy persecution. If you just stand for truth uncompromisingly, our culture is going so far away from truth that it would not surprise me at all if we have to face some heavy persecution here in America. Let's, let's talk for a moment about what do we do when we see others facing persecution. There are people that are facing extreme persecution in these countries, Nigeria, Sudan, Somalia, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and North Korea. 
That's where the persecution is the heaviest today. So certain parts of Africa, the Middle East, and North Korea. And, and it's heavy there, very heavy. I, I did a little bit of research on the internet just to, to find out what's going on in terms of the persecuted church around the world. And I'll just give you a couple of examples that I, that I discovered. And these are things that have been happening in the last two, three months. Um, strangers came to an evangelist home in Bangladesh and they asked if he would teach them the Bible. He was a known evangelist of that village. And so he welcomed them in and he began to share the gospel with them. And as soon as he did that, one of them jumped up, shut the front door. The other one took a knife and slit the man's throat. In Egypt, police raided a local Christian satellite TV station. They confiscated their equipment and they detained the director of that satellite station in the police headquarters for several hours. So they're harassing those who are broadcasting the gospel, broadcasting Christian information. Thirdly, on September 13th, 2015, so that would be about two months ago, attackers set fire to three churches in Tanzania, which is a, an area in Africa. Since 2013, there have been 13 arsons in that area directly leveled against churches. Up to this time, nobody has been held accountable or uh, arrested or anything for those crimes. But probably the one that's most on our minds is what ISIS has been doing over in most, mostly the Middle East. Um, and it's atrocious. It really is to read the things that are taking place. They are raping Christian women, telling them that it's their duty and it's not wrong for them to do that before they go ahead and rape them. They're using Christian women as sex slaves. They are kidnapping children and detonating them as bombs. They are beheading and shooting believers. In fact, it's their goal either to force Christians to convert or to drive them out of their homeland or to kill them. They've got one of three options. If they don't want to convert, they've got to flee or die. So these things are happening around the world, and we have persecuted brothers and sisters who we will be with in heaven, and I'm sure we're going to be sharing and talking about the stories of our life together. They're alive today facing real persecution. And since we are blessed here in America not to have to face what they do, I think at the very least we ought to be praying, crying to God day and night, like he tells us here in Luke 18, for them, because they are facing it. So what kind of things should we pray for them about? And I've made a short list here. Let's pray that they would fearlessly make Christ known. That they would love Christ's appearing. That they would rejoice in sharing in His sufferings. Pray that they would endure to the end. That they would love Christ more than life. That they would love their enemies. That they would remember the future glory to where they're headed that they would trust Him completely. And yes, let's pray for their protection and deliverance. But in all these things, we know God is sovereign, and He may have part of His purpose and plan to allow them to go through this time where they'll actually be martyred for their faith. In fact, in Revelation chapter 6, this is a very interesting passage. Let me just go there for just a moment. Revelation 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain 
because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So these are people who have died for their faith, persecuted because they're Christians. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there were given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Do you get the sense from this passage that there is an appointed number who are going to be killed for Christ? God knows who they are. They've been ordained to pass through those fires. God is going to give them the grace to withstand it, just like he did Polycarp, like he will do to every other person that has to face that. He will enable them to be faithful into the end. But there is an appointed number, a predestined number of people that, that God knows. And he says, you, you fellows here, just hold on. Wear your white robes. Just relax and you're under the altar. Just You're going to have to wait a while just a little while longer, until all of those who have been appointed are actually martyred for their faith, and then the end will come. So this morning, I thought it would be fitting for us, as application to this text, to have a time of prayer as a church for our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world. Now, I know that you probably don't know anyone personally. Maybe you do, but I, I don't think I know anyone personally. But that should not stop us in praying for them. They need our prayers. They need the grace of God to be able to withstand these trials and to be faithful unto death. Revelation chapter 3, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So, let's take some time as a church this morning to pray for them. And I'd like this to be corporate prayer. And let's, let's think of some of those things that I mentioned just before. Um, to fearlessly make Christ known, to love His appearing, to rejoice in sharing His sufferings like Paul did, to endure to the end, to love Christ more than life, to love their enemies, to remember their future glory to which they're headed, to trust God in the midst of the trial, and for their protection and deliverance in the meantime. Okay, so let's do that now together as a church. And each one, just as the Lord puts something on your heart, let's just send that, let's cry unto God, like He tells us here in Luke 18, for justice. Amen? Let's go ahead and pray.